Hey everybody, Magnus here. At the time that I record all this, which is to say this introduction, Amazing Spider-Man 2 has just come out, and I went to see it yesterday with my girlfriend, and... <sighs> Look, you gotta understand, I was kind of a reboot skeptic when it came to Spider-Man, and one of the reasons for that is... I felt like we just didn't need a reboot. I felt like the Sam Raimi version of Spider-Man still had plenty of mojo. Make sense? Plenty of stories left to tell. You could make plenty more movies based on the Sam Raimi Spider-Man and you didn't need a fucking reboot. But a reboot is what we got nonetheless. So... You can whine and complain about it and sort of fight reality, but the fact is, nothing you say, nothing you do is going to change the fact that the franchise has been rebooted, and so I think we can all just move on. Now, having said all of that, I decided I was going to give the first Amazing Spider-Man a fair shot. Because, as will become evident in just a little while, I don't consider myself to be uh, a hardcore Spider-Man fan. I'm just not... He's just never really been my guy, right? And that's really not from any lack of trying on my part, either. It's just it's one of those things. Just It never worked out. You know, We never got the timing of it right. Spider-Man and I didn't. And so that's just the way that it is. And so here we are. Now, like I said, watched, and I'm smoking right now. Watched the uh, first Amazing Spider-Man movie, um, not long after it came out on Blu-ray, and really enjoyed it. You know, thought it was a fun little time at the movies. Saw Amazing Spider-Man 2 yesterday with Stasis Magnus, and... Holy shit, I really enjoyed that movie. Now, I'm not sure if getting that movie is worth, you know, sitting through a reboot, but nevertheless, I just really enjoyed that that movie, you know? And in a lot of ways, I, I still stand by my original assertion that we didn't need a reboot. The Sam Raimi Spider-Man in that universe was just fine, you know? But that having been said, I, like I, and like I said, I really enjoyed Amazing Spider-Man 2. And I think the thing that ultimately... And maybe I'll just make a, a fucking show out of this at some point. You know, just an entire episode dedicated just to this at some point in the future. I don't know. But one of the things, though, that really stood out to me about the movie was that... Spider-Man's making headway in Amazing Spider-Man 2. He's not still regarded by all and sundry as some kind of public menace. Everybody hates him and all that stuff, you know? The public is starting to realize that Spider-Man brings something to the table. He's doing good. And they, they, the people of New York, they are starting to value that. Hell, even the police department is starting to value that. And that's about as far into spoiler territory as I care to go right now. I don't really think that... I don't really think that spoils too much of anything about the movie because there are major plot points that I haven't touched on and 
wouldn't touch on until I'm pretty sure that all or most of us have seen the movie, right? But that one little moment, or that series of moments kind of scattered all throughout the, uh, the movie, it just works for me, you know? It, 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 it plays for me that Spider-Man is... He's a success. He's good at his job. He's good at being a superhero. And, I don't know. It just, I liked it. So, anyway, so that's that. Amazing Spider-Man 2. Go see it. Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears body armor to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Hello, and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and my show is all about comics, movies, and TV shows. The problem is I've spent probably the majority of my time on this show talking about comics rather than anything else. Now, call me crazy, but I saw an opportunity here. And so what better excuse could there be to talk about shitloads of movies? But not just any movies. I mean sequels. And not just any sequels, I mean tragically misunderstood sequels. Now, a lot of podcasters out there don't rush blindly into things. They usually do market research and test screenings and focus groups and all kinds of other crazy bullshit to figure out what they should cover on their shows next. But not me. Nope. I go where I want to go talk about what I want to talk about and I drag my loyal subjects along for the ride because I'm not soliciting opinions. This isn't a damn democracy. I'm Magnus, so get on board with that or get out. Anyway. But yeah, so the next several episodes are going to be all about misunderstood sequels. Basically, I plan to spend the next few weeks setting the record straight on that stuff. Now, normally... A mini-series like this would go for six episodes, but this series is, is only planned to last for five episodes because coming soon is my epic, epic, epic 50th episode. I mean, how cool is that going to be? People, my 50th episode will be what awesome, amazing, and his little brother badass listened to after a hard day at the office. That is how big everything is going to be. When my 50th episode comes out, both C.C. DeMille and Charlton Heston will both come back from the dead to report Trennis Magnus punches reality now has a near monopoly on all things epic. Of course, that won't be breaking news to any of you long-timers. But anyway, you might ask yourself why I'm doing all this. Well, I guess you can chalk it up to me loving certain movies and wanting other people to love them too. Or, or I guess maybe lacking that, at least acknowledging that these flicks aren't the cesspool of mediocrity that they're made out to be. And these days it's just part of the lexicon. It's become unquestioned conventional wisdom that today's topic, Spider-Man 3, sucks so bad that to borrow a phrase from Michael Bailey, it has its own event horizon. 
Now, for my part, I've never agreed with that, but before we get too far into my opinions about this, I should probably introduce my guest and co-host for this episode, Two True Freaks a co-founder, co-host, my benefactor, and former NASCAR pit mechanic for Richard Petty, introducing Scott Gardner. <laughs> That's quite the introduction. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, if anybody deserves an epic introduction, sir, it's Michael Bailey. But if there's two, you're in there too. Thanks. I, I, <laughs> I appreciate that. Oh, once again, second fiddle to Michael Bailey. <laughs> but seriously, though, man, I'm really glad that you could make it here. Um, you know, because honestly, everyone that I could possibly have on this show... You're the one that I would want to talk to about with uh, when it comes to Spider-Man 3. So thank you very much for joining in. Hey, thank you for inviting me because, uh, you know, as soon as I saw the subject on this, I was like, oh, hell yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Because uh, I completely agree with you. This film catches way too much flack. And uh, I have been itching for some time to try to do some sort of defense for this one. So, yes, I'm totally on board. And, and you know, that's the thing. I figured that at some point or another... Uh, just to kind of peel back my own curtain a little bit, uh, I figured that at some point or another, it could only be a matter of time before two true freaks did something like this themselves. Mm -hmm. I wanted to beat you to the punch. So, <laughs> anyway, so, but Scott's here, in case it wasn't obvious, Scott's here to help me out in defending Spider-Man 3 against the myriad gripes, complaints, attacks, criticisms, and terrorist threats and bashings and other things that it gets from some parts of the fandom. Now, let me just emphasize that I'm not the biggest Spider-Man fan in the entire world. I've, now don't get me wrong, I mean, I've read Spider-Man comics over the years, and I, I like most of them, but I wouldn't consider myself to be a core Spider-Man fan. So, that makes my remarks either very relevant or completely pointless. It's, it's your call, really. But anyway, so since I'm feeling kind of polite today, uh, Scott, if you'd like to take the lead on this, if you want... Why exactly is it that you dig Spider-Man 3 so much? Oh, wow. That's... Yikes. That's a tough question. Um, well, it's funny. I, I was going to chime in with something that you had just said about being a, a core Spider-Man fan or not. And see, I, I, I would describe myself much the same way because my era of Spider-Man was fairly short-lived. I mean, I discovered... I mean, Spider-Man is one of those characters that for me was always kind of there much like Superman mm -hmm. and I can't really remember like where I discovered him or where I came in or anything like that I, I think it was probably when he was uh, uh, you know he would guest star on the electric company when I was a kid you know he'd have those short little um, segments on the electric company show so that was probably my first exposure and I remember the old 60s cartoon that of course was in reruns by the time I discovered it and then there was like Spider-Man and his amazing friends and things like that but you know Spider-Man I, I think one of the awesome things about Spider-Man comic book wise is that he largely is a character where you can just kind of drop in and drop out and you know if you want to be a, a loyal fan and you know Lord knows he has a lot of them then that works for that character but also, if you want to kind of be a fair weather fan and, and kind of drop in and drop out when it looks good or when it appeals to you, the, the character works that way. So for me, I, I guess I would kind of, I would kind of label myself that way. Not so much a fair weather fan as like I had my time with the character. I guess is the way I would describe it. 
And that time with the character was really the the Roger Stern era leading into the uh, David Michelinie era. Mm. Um, That's a good era. And yeah, it's, it's, it's great stuff. So I really identify with that particular era of Spider-Man. That's my Spider-Man. And I, I can even remember basically, although I had read Spider-Man comics, although I had picked up odd issues here and there, for me, my Spider-Man run, as far as like a solid following of the character, pretty much starts with an issue of uh, Spectacular Spider-Man. I want to say it's like issue like 58, 59, 60, right in that era, which of course it's, it's Stern was the writer on that. Uh, right around the time like the Beetle came in and fought Spider-Man and the Gibbon and a, a lot of what what I later learned were like, you know, Z-list characters, but I didn't know that. You know, this was my first exposure to those characters. And I followed him pretty faithfully right to the end of... I don't know if Michelinie left the book, but I know McFarlane left the book to do the adjectiveless Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much where I bailed out at that point. So that's quite a run. I'm not sure how many years that works out to, maybe 10 or something like that. Sounds about right, actually. And uh, and just, you know, a really solid era, some really great stories. You know, we saw Peter progress as a character. He got married to Mary Jane. Venom came along and just all these really interesting developments. So this is my very long-winded way of, of explaining kind of in a nutshell my relation to Spider-Man 3 is that I see Spider-Man 3 as basically a two-hour encapsulation of my era of Spider-Man. I really identified with the movie very well. I, you know, for one thing, it had not that I'm some huge Venom fan really, but at the time when Venom was new, and this, I think a lot of people either don't remember or maybe they just didn't live through it. At one time, Venom was actually a cool character. I know that's hard to imagine now because they of what they've done to him. I find him an extremely grating character. Mm-hmm. But when he first came along, he was original, he was cool, and there's a reason why they just overplayed him because when he first came along, people really were like, like wow, this is really cool. This is a very inventive idea it's a great new villain that sort of thing and the movie kind of helped me kind of mentally step back to that that period in spider-man comics and there's a lot of other reasons too but i think that movie just really nailed the feel of the comic the spider-man comics of of my era of spider-man and i hear so many people criticize it for all the different reasons I'm sure we're going to get into. But the, the major criticism I hear is that uh, it's just too busy. There's too much stuff going on. And without sounding, I don't know, I don't want to sound, uh, whatever, confrontational or whatever, but I always, in the back of my mind, whenever I hear that criticism, my first thought is to kind of throw that criticism out and think, have you ever read a Spider-Man comic, particularly from that era? Because that's what they were. There was so much shit going on every single issue of Spider-Man, particularly in that 80s to 90s era, that, I mean, each issue felt like a meaty read. Right. Because there was, you know, he was battling whatever big villain was in that particular issue, but then the subplots, man, so many subplots, setting up things for storylines, you know, all over the place. So I liked that feel with the movie. 
And I kind of wonder if a lot of the criticism of the movie doesn't come retroactively from the fact that some of the things didn't play out because we didn't never got a Spider-Man 4. So maybe if we had, maybe it would make 3 flow a little better for some people. I'm not sure if that logic follows, but No, it does. And you know, and that actually leads leads into that's it's it's kind of funny. That's where you ended off because that's actually where my notes actually begin. <laughs> um, you know, the uh, the thing uh, the way I see it, there there really are are two ways of dealing with that. Number one, there's the behind the scenes real world uh, aspect where basically Sony said that, you know, look, we're getting all kinds of demand to do this character, which is to say Venom. We need you to put him into your movie. And I think <clears throat> uh, just a cursory glance at, you know, the big picture of what Spider-Man 3 is suggests that Venom probably was not originally part of the uh, story that, that uh, Raimi wanted to tell. He had to find a way to shoehorn the character in there, and he did the best he could with, within the constraints and limitations that he was given. But the other part of that, and this is the part that just seriously blows my fucking mind, all right? You don't have to go very far in fandom to find people who will make fun of the action movie franchise. You know, that these are just complete... And to me, and Scott, I'm not saying that this is how I feel. I'm just saying that there are people out there who feel this way specifically about Transformers, that these things are completely vacuous, empty, just sort of empty calorie type of action movies, and they have there's, – there's not a, really an idea to them. Well, here we mm -hmm. come – we have this, this big, huge, expensive Hollywood action blockbuster that it has too many good ideas. It has too many good characters in it. It's got too many subplots. And it's like, wow, that is a really fucking weird criticism to level against – a movie that honestly most people, as far as genre is concerned, they kind of take a low view of. You're complaining that this has has too much good stuff in it. Really, that's your that's your problem. And it just to me, it's almost missing the forest for the trees, you know. And I, I guess I don't understand that. You know, I, I don't understand why people feel like that is. I don't know that that is somehow a valid criticism. You know, that's what I'm going to lead my thesis with. There is just too much cool stuff in this movie. It needs to suck more. You know what? what is that what you're saying? It needs to suck. What do you guys want? And yeah, but well, you know, that question in itself is what, you know, what do you want? It is one of the things I do come away from this uh, listening to the criticisms is wow. You know, I mean, Spider-Man three, I, I think it's important to, to point out falls within a period where superhero movies were really just starting to kind of gain their feet to where we it, it was still where we were at the creation of this awesome run that we've been on. Right. And we have been on a really awesome run now, you know, all the way up through uh, Avengers leading, you know, to wherever the future is going to take us with with future um, Marvel movies in particular. Right, yeah, definitely. And, yeah, so that's another reason I don't quite get the criticism with Spider-Man 3 is that, yeah, to a certain degree, it's like, it's what you said. What, what did you want exactly? Because this movie, I thought, gave a lot of positive things in spades. And I don't have a, you know, all the criticisms I've heard, I guess... 
I, I should have done a little more research as far as like what exactly are the criticisms that people are leveling? Because all I really know is what I've heard. And the one that I continue to hear over and over again is the one of, well, there's just too much stuff going on. I, I don't I don't get that as a as a critic. It's like, OK, I, you got to give me a little more. Uh, explain. What do you mean too much stuff going on? Because I mean, these are the same people that'll watch, you know, a, a James Bond movie. Well, if you can follow that, then Spider-Man three somehow confuses you. I, I don't, I don't understand the criticism myself. And again, it, it goes back to my feeling of, wow, gee, you know, have you, have you ever read a, a Spider-Man comic from the era this is pulling from? Cause that's pretty much what they were. There's a lot of stuff going on. Right. So I, I don't, I really don't get it. And the other aspect of it for me, and this is not to change the subject or, or, or pick on something that you and I have both kind of said our piece about before. I'm simply drawing a, a comparison. There are a lot of movies out there that, that are trilogies mm-hmm. that, let's face it, they kind of fizzle out in the third one. Mm-hmm. The filmmakers are basic. They're out of gas. They're out of ideas. And I'm not saying that you know these movies are artistically bankrupt. I'm just saying that their best days are definitely behind them. And for me personally, if you feel otherwise, if any, if, if you, Scott, although I know you, you'll probably agree, but, or anyone who's listening to this, if you disagree, that's fine. I'm not trying to change your mind. I'm just saying that, you know, the Dark Knight Rises, for me, you know, I was of the opinion coming out of that movie that to whatever degree Chris Nolan ever had a heyday with Batman, it was a long fucking time ago. Now, that having been said, you know, I, I think I'm on the record for saying that, you know, the first maybe 40 or so minutes of that movie is is just freaking punk rock. It's basically the minute Batman shows up on screen, that's when things go south. I'm at a loss to find an equivalent moment with Spider-Man 3, that moment where, oh, fuck it, it loses me, you know. And this is a third film. I mean, this is kind of a rare thing for for some of the best ideas this franchise ever had to be in the third movie about the time when most franchises, like equivalent franchises, are starting to peter out. And some of the best ideas they had were in were in Spider-Man 3. It just kind of seems like, you know, a weird... Again, it's just, of all things to pick on, you know, it just kind of feels like Spider-Man 3 is just a really interesting choice. But to kind of get into the movie in general, or no, actually specifically, because we've been general, to get in the movie specifically... The key issue that Peter has to deal with in Spider-Man 3 is his own hubris. To me, he's become so accustomed to life shitting on him that the professional success that he experiences as as Peter, as well as the public acceptance that he's begun receiving as Spider-Man, these things are starting to go to his head. And Peter's becoming way too self-absorbed that he can't even empathize with Mary Jane and her problems anymore. And, and, and don't get me wrong, it's understandable that he'd feel that way, but when all said and done, people want to be able to count on their friends, and Peter hasn't been acting like a good one lately when it comes to Mary Jane. And, you know, like I said, it, you know, he has his reasons, but, you know, facts is facts. He was not really there for Mary Jane when, when she needed him. And it's important to remember that the symbiote doesn't make Peter this monomaniacal fuckpole. All it does is bring that trait out in him even more. It's amplifying what's already there. And I guess, you know, since we're on the subject of that, maybe this is one of the most common criticisms that I've seen of, uh, about this movie. But that kind of brings me rather neatly to the dancing. 
I don't understand why people don't understand. I mean, Peter Parker is a dork. And at his core, he's a hero. Spider-Man 3 isn't the story of, of, of Peter giving into his personal dark side. It's Peter giving into his really just fucking poorly lit side. I mean, on his worst day, Peter is not Darth Vader. He's just acting like a vain, ob- obnoxious, self-absorbed jackass, not the Prince of Darkness. So the dancing, the showboating, all that stuff, that's Peter's darkest hour. That This is as bad as it gets. You're looking at it. I mean, what do you think? Well, I, I, I agree with parts of that. It's funny because I see more of Mary Jane being the one that really has an issue in this movie as opposed to Peter. I think Peter's pretty much being the same character we've seen through through all three of the movies. And I don't think he realizes quite what's, you know, obviously he doesn't quite realize what's going on with her. But I think he's trying to be there for her. And I, it's it's really strange because every time I watch this, I'm really drawn to the relationship between the two of them much more in this particular movie than in the first two movies, because the first, especially the very first movie, I didn't quite buy the whole semi-relationship that they had going on. And I could kind of buy it a little bit better in the second one, although, again, you know, you've got the the super hot girl and the complete dork. But by this movie, she knows that he's Spider-Man, and she'd already kind of had a thing for Spider-Man, so... I guess that makes her a little more black cat than Mary Jane, you know, that she's a little more infatuated maybe with, with Spider-Man than Peter. Mm-hmm. But I see her actually as being kind of the shallow one in this particular movie, because I, I see what you're saying about he's finally gaining a level of, of whatever popularity, I guess. And that would change a person, especially a person who has, you know, been a geek has been very much an outsider. Now all of a sudden, even though it's his alter ego, that's getting it. He he's gaining this acceptance. He's getting this fame and maybe it's causing him to kind of lose sight of what's going on with the other person in his, you know, romantic relationship. I, I get that, but still I see her, I don't want to say that she's like, oh, she's just a bitch or whatever. I I don't see it quite that way. But I see her as being a little shallow, a little selfish that Peter's finally got it good for the first time in his life. And rather than her being supportive of him, she's so wrapped up in herself and this thing with with her Broadway show and, and her career and everything that I almost see it more as she's the one that's not being supportive as opposed to him not being supportive of her. Because I think he's trying to be there for her. And maybe there's even a level of, of jealousy there that, that he's kind of going somewhere and she she fails to. I don't know if that really makes any sense, but every time I, I, I watch the picture... I get a little more upset with her each time because there's a great scene right after she gets canned Mm -hmm. and she walks out of the theater and everybody starts clapping and she thinks it's for her. And then she realizes it's for Spider-Man swinging by and she just has this hateful expression on her face. And you can see that here's the beginning of she's become resentful 
of Peter's success as as Spider-Man and, and his newfound fame and popularity. And this is, you know, doubly more so in this scene where uh, Peter's having his big day, you know, Spider-Man day, and he's going to put in an appearance and everything. And, yeah, yeah, she shows up and she offers a level of support, but also, whether consciously or not, she's it's almost like she's working to bring Peter down a level as well because she's kind of wrapped up in her own thing that's going on. Now, granted, she doesn't spoil the day outright for him because she could. She could be, you know, she could lay it on him right then and there what's going on with her and knowing Peter as a character, he would probably forego his big day to be there to support her if he knew what was really going on with her. But she doesn't say anything, and so he doesn't know, and he continues on with his day. So again, I don't see him as the shallow one. I, I still I put a lot of the problems with their relationship in this film on her, because she keeps saying things like "You're not there for me," and and she eventually winds up, you know, going into hair, you know, into Harry's arms, and all the things that happen in the picture. But a lot of it is on her because she she wants this support from Peter, yet she doesn't really clue him in. I mean, at the end of the day, he's not only a guy and sometimes we have to be kind of hit over the head with a frying pan to get our attention, but also he's a nerd guy and he's a nerd guy. That's again, kind of finally being accepted as, you know, as Spider-Man and, and gaining his own thing. So he's doubly distracted by that. So that all that said, I like the relationship between the two of them in this movie much more than I do in either of the other two movies. There's a number of scenes between the two of them, especially the breakup scene on the bridge that I have heard criticized many times, especially for the fact that that Peter, you know, gets, you know, he starts crying about the thing. Mm -hmm. I find that scene to be incredibly realistic as someone who's gone through a scene very similar to that at least a couple of times in my life. I can identify with where he's coming from and having heard almost the same kind of reasoning for the breakup coming from the female in the relationship. So I like that moment between them. There's a lot of moments in their relationship in this movie that I could personally identify with. So again, lending into another big reason why I like the movie so much. Well, a couple of things there. Um, the way I looked at their interaction in the movie was that Peter, he was kind of either willfully submerging or else he wasn't even making the effort to identify with Mary Jane and empathize with her on her own terms. You know, he kept basically changing the subject in some way or another back to himself. And I, I, again, I think his reasons for that are totally valid. But, you know, at the end of the day, a personality flaw is a personality flaw. I mean, I think we've all met people in life, and there, there's even a psychological term for this. It's called monomania, where the only way somebody can relate to others is through themselves and their own experiences. And so whenever they hear somebody say, oh, my God, I, you know, I was in this car wreck today and uh, fucking my cell phone is completely is, is completely fucked up because it bounced off my head and then you know fell out the window and now some truck ran you know basically something like that and then some guy said yeah you know well that happened to me one time it was really shitty you know and it's like okay well dude we weren't fucking talking about you we were talking about me I had this fucking problem why are you changing the subject like this you know 
And the other thing is, honestly, I kind of tend to write Mary Jane off in these movies because I just don't like Mary Jane. I'd, I've never really been all that high on the character, at least not since uh, she, she and Peter really started getting serious, I think, in the 80s. I've read a decent amount of that era, and I just really do not like her. And I think maybe the best example of that that I can think of is really about the time that – not that there's anything wrong with Todd McFarlane, just that that's when I remember just really fucking hating Mary Jane – there was something weird about the time that McFarlane started drawing Spider-Man. I thought Mary Jane was just a completely unbearable shrew of a human being. And so, you know, if other people like her, well, you know, that's great. But it's just that's the baggage I'm bringing to this. I just don't like Mary Jane. I really don't understand the allure there, why Peter would be interested in somebody like that. And so for – and you know, but obviously he is. That's the story we have to go with. So the way I process it is just kind of – as much as I can, ignore Mary Jane. But, you know, you actually said something a minute ago that it just it, it, it got me to thinking. You know, you said that you could relate to what happened to Peter and Mary Jane on the bridge on sort of a personal level because, you know, things similar to that had happened to you. And that kind of made me wonder. I've heard that scene get picked on and kicked around so much and honestly, I'm not a big I, – I don't like it, but I don't dislike it either. I mean to me, it's just – it's there, right? But is it possible that maybe one of the reasons that people just hate that scene so much is because it is so realistic and that we've all kind of been through moments like that and yeah. that's the part that they don't like? Is that possible? Uh, def- uh, yeah, I think that's a definite, uh, you know, definite possibility because – yeah, scenes that are uncomfortable like that, maybe that hit a little too close to home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see people criticizing it, but not – see, I want to be careful about how I word this. I was going to say criticizing it without really understanding why they're criticizing it. Criticizing just because it, it, it does bring up something uh, uncomfortable possibly from their own past without them consciously realizing that that's why, I don't know. That might be reading way too much into that scene. Um, I've just heard it more attacked for one of the, another criticism that, that really just occurred to me is that I often hear leveled against the movie is that, um, uh, Toby Maguire just cries too much in the movie. But I mean, look at the things that happened to the poor guy. You know, he, he loses his girl, and, you know, in that particular scene, in the bridge scene, see, I th- I find him very genuine in that moment, because not, not only is his heart being broken, you know, he's losing the girl, uh, you know, literally of his dreams, this, this girl that he's always been after. Right. But also, you can see in the scene that, much like the, the dinner scene, where he's planning to propose, and she just gets angry and storms out... See, I see him very genuinely a nerd. He just doesn't get it. This is really his first real relationship with a girl, and he's just a little clueless sometimes. And you combine those two scenes, and I find his acting to be spot on as kind of a clueless guy nerd that just doesn't get What's happening that all it's like, where's this coming from this? 
also plays into the scene between him and Harry in the diner where Harry kind of drops it on him that, uh, by the way, I'm the other guy. Right. I love that scene on a number of levels. And one of the big levels I really like it on is where you can see Peter's reaction of kind of like, he's just, he's stunned. He's like, what? Wait, what? Right. I like that. I, again, I think the, the acting in that is very, very genuine that if he, if he was a little, not that Peter Parker's stupid, but when it comes to this relationship aspect, yeah, he's a little dense because, again, he he doesn't have a lot of experience in this field. You know, he's, uh, again, a very quintessential nerd. He's incredibly book smart, yet when it comes to interpersonal skills, not so much. And, again, I I have to ask not to... You know, not to be mean or, or not to stereotype, but again, is this maybe something, another reason why nerddom doesn't care for this movie? Is it hitting a little too close to home? Oh. Because, you know, one of those those stereotypes that unfortunately does exist for a reason about us nerds is that, well, sometimes we don't have the greatest interpersonal skills. Or maybe we don't have the greatest relationship or success with girl skills. Right. So, I, again, I see McGuire's performance as nerd Peter Parker as incredibly genuine in this movie for those reasons. And, you know, speaking of the diner scene, just real quick, mm. uh, you know, I, another thing I hear criticized a lot, and this goes way beyond Spider-Man 3 is James Franco. I just hear him attacked a lot as a performer. Oh, as really? Uh, yeah, constantly. And dude, I, you know, I was slow to warm to him, but this was the movie where he won me over. And now I would consider myself a, a, a fan of Franco. Everything else I've seen him in past this, and granted there wasn't a lot. You know, he was in um, um, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. He was in... Um, Oz the Great and Powerful, which granted wasn't a great movie, but I thought he was great in a not-so-great movie. Mm-hmm. And a couple other things I've seen him in. But this is where he won me over. I think he's fantastic as Harry Osborn in this. Mm. And it's funny, on not this most recent rewatch, but a, a while back, because my, my boys, by the way, um, you know, my boys are ages uh, uh, 17 and 13. They love this movie. Absolutely love this movie. So again, you know, that that's always given me a little bit more credence. And that's not with no coaching for me, by the way. That's that's with me never really having told them that this is quite possibly my favorite of the trilogy. Just on their own, they love the movie. But I can remember watching this at some point, probably when we first got it on DVD, and one of them remarking that, you know, I kind of wish that that guy had been Peter Parker, meaning James Franco. Right. <clears throat> I think that's an interesting you know, that would have been an interesting route to go. I could almost see Franco playing a really good Peter Parker. He's not quite as nerdy, but again, that's the character he's playing in this. I wonder if he could have pulled off nerdy Peter Parker and something tells me he, he probably could have done a pretty good job with it. Well, um, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. You're kind of catching me off guard here. I honestly, <laughs> I did not know that there was any kind of dissenting opinion about James Franco. Now, keep in mind, when it comes to Spider-Man fandom, my fingers are nowhere near the pulse. But right. I always kind of thought that my view, well, my view was that 
I was pretty much on board with Franco right from the start. I mean, you know, he didn't really, admittedly, he didn't really do a whole lot to distinguish himself in the first movie. But honestly, all I asked for that first movie, I mean, considering the vintage of comic book films that we're talking about, was that nobody stink up the screen. That's really all I wanted. (laughs) And, you know, on that basis, I think everyone succeeded admirably. And so by the time of the second movie, when you actually got a little bit more dimension out of James Franco and his character and what he's doing, his motivations and all that, I was pretty much on board with him. Okay, I said, okay, so this guy's Harry Osborn now. I, I can live with that. And so by the time of the third one, it's again, it just never even occurred to me that there are people out there who maybe don't like him. And that's, wow, that's a real punch in the balls. I didn't, I never saw that coming. So yeah, well, I, I like, I look, you know, for things like that, I mean, I guess there's really no accounting for taste, right? you know, to me, and admittedly, I mean, a lot of this kind of relates to just my larger analysis of the movie, but the real crux of all of this comes down to Harry Osborn. You know, and I think James Franco did a, just a fucking phenomenal job, you know. But when Peter decides, you know, that he wants to get even with <clears> – <throat> when he wants to get even with Harry, you know, Harry, he's been a, a pretty believable, you know, villain for a, a good part of the movie up to this point. And he still has sympathy whenever he finally gets his comeuppance. You know, he plays a victim, I think, really well, even though how much of a victim is he really? I mean, he brought a lot of this bullshit on himself. But I don't that's it that wow, that's a really interesting a really interesting criticism. I'm, that's wow. But you know, but I guess since you know, speaking of Harry and speaking of, you know, him being the crux of all of this, you know, to go back to, you know, Peter's character arc through all of this, you know, Peter already found out the hard way before he has his little showdown with Harry. He already knew going in that the symbiote is bad, bad news. You know, for all, you know, Peter knew at the time, because of the symbiote's influence, he killed Flint Marco. And he was pretty fucking horrified by that, so he locked the symbiote away in his closet. But then Harry comes along and seriously pisses Peter off and made Mary Jane break up with him, all of that. And so having gone through all of that, Peter put on the symbiote, the black costume, and he paid Harry a visit. And understand, Peter is making a moral choice by doing this. He knows damn good and well that the black costume brings out all of his worst traits. You know, he's been through that scene now with Flint Marco. He knows what this thing does to him. He put it on to, to have his showdown with Harry. He put the suit on anyway. And he knows that the minute he puts that thing on, he'll show Harry no mercy. He might even kill him. And Peter puts it on anyway. And, you know, this happens after Harry's lost his memory and Harry attacks Peter toward the beginning of the movie. They slug it out. Peter wins the fight. And at that point, Peter didn't have the black costume. So my point here is that just in the natural, Peter is not necessarily going to shoot to kill on this without the symbiote's influence. So knowing all of this, knowing that Peter, in his in his right mind, is probably going to show Harry a lot of mercy, he puts the damn thing on anyway. Just think about that for a minute. Let it sink in. Peter had to cross a lot of moral lines before he even went to Harry's mansion looking for his pound of flesh. Peter chose to put on the black costume knowing damn good and well 
that he tried to kill somebody the last time he wore it. And to me, I mean, that's 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 big. That is mm-hmm. that that's really big. I mean, what do you think? Well, just right out of the gate, those two scenes in particular, the the scene where where Harry attacks Peter as he's driving on his uh, moped there right toward the beginning of the movie and then later where Peter comes and I love the way you put it to take his pound of flesh from from Harry. Those two scenes right there are enough to to push this film well into my, you know, okay, this film is awesome category. And it's another one of those things that just leaves me scratching my head when people bash on this because those are two incredible scenes, especially the first one. You know, when when Peter attacks, or excuse me, when Harry attacks Peter, that entire scene, and how long does that scene run? Like 15 minutes. That is some of the, the most epic superhero action that we have seen in a big blockbuster, big budget superhero movie ever. Just the the whole glider sequence and, and them fighting and having their aerial combat and so much of that scene is quintessential Spider-Man doing what Spider-Man does best. I think it's great. I think the special effects are top notch. The music, and of course, that's a lot of the reason why I love this movie anyway, is the music. Yes. But the music in both of those scenes is just incredible. I mean, in the first scene, it's great chase music, just really good superhero chase music, because that's what that scene essentially is, is is Harry attacking and then pursuing Peter through that entire scene. Then later, it's Peter coming to Harry's apartment for a confrontation. And I love the music in that because it starts out almost jazzy, but by the end of it, it turns into, uh, you know, superhero fight music. Right. But still with kind of a jazzy overtone to it. And it was a strange musical choice that really works. And it sells the entire scene. And those two scenes, I, I, I think, are the, the scenes that I will always pull out of this movie and, and hold up as, how can you be down on this? Look how awesome these two parts of the film are. Two very pivotal moments of the film. And it, it just seems to owe back into that criticism of, of too much and, and too many villains is another thing that I've heard. Well, I don't, I don't get that either. Because again, Spider-Man comics were often like that. You you might have one, maybe even two primary villains and then somebody else waiting in the wings to, to come to the forefront in a future issue coming down the line. So I like the juggling act that this movie performs with all the different characters and with the three different villains. I like Harry kind of coming back and, and having a bit of a redemption story late in the movie um i mean there's so many elements that this movie really gives me the the spider-man adventure that that i want that i enjoy on so many levels right i don't know if i answered your question but <laughs> well no i you actually well and you did but i mean you also you, you also brought up um a lot of points line obviously one thing that i hadn't talked too much about was the score for this movie and now just keep in mind i don't really consider myself to be a big you know film score guy 
So either that makes me the very best to comment about this or the very worst, I don't know. But <laughs> I am just I I am in love with uh this with, with this with the music from this film because it feels like it takes all of the themes that have been developed in in the music in the previous films and then I don't know, it brings them to consummation or maturity or I don't know, it, but it basically expands upon them, it develops them, and there's just a lot of powerful emotion in, in, in the... Okay, just to put it another way, right? Like, there are, sometimes you, you watch a, uh, a uh, superhero, or really, I guess, any film, and really, the music is just kind of there because somebody feels like there should be music there. Here it's right. almost more like it's operatic and that it really oh, is definitely. it's helping to tell the story. Um, you know, you're seeing it, but now you're also hearing it too. And I would almost kind of want to compare it in some ways to what John Williams does whenever he scores a Star Wars film. In his own way, he's helping to tell the story too. See, I'm really glad to hear you say that because I was going to make that, that comparison myself and was a little bit concerned that that someone out there listening to you because you know there's going to be people listening to this that uh, don't come in sharing our opinion and probably won't leave sharing our opinion either and so there's certain things that we're probably going to say that are going to get the oh come on reaction and that's one that I was a little bit concerned would get that reaction but no I'm I'm totally with you because that's one of the reasons I love the score to this movie is that it it is very Williams like in the aspect of you know, one of my most frequent criticisms of latter-day comic book film scoring, particularly as much as I love them, particularly the lead-up movies to the Avengers, and even the Avengers itself to a large degree, is that the music is a little backgroundish. Mm -hmm. It doesn't do what Williams was so masterful at, at his, you know, in his prime and at his peak, say with like the Star Wars films mm -hmm. as a really good example everybody had a theme so when it was Luke action you heard Luke's theme if it was you know Ben Kenobi then you heard Ben Kenobi's theme if it was Princess Leia you heard her theme I miss that particular style of scoring we have gotten further and further removed from that as this other style of scoring that I don't even know what you would call it, it it's very just, percussive in a lot of cases yeah percussive and just kind of again very it's there it can be epic it can sound really good but it's not thematic mm -hmm. i like walking out of a movie and at least give me a, a a theme for the hero and some of the recent ones we had didn't really even have a, a discernible theme for the hero so one of the things that i think spider-man 3 gets right on every level is everybody has a theme you know, of course you've already got Spider-Man's theme. I think Christopher Young tweaks that very well and, and makes it a little more defined. Mm. I didn't dislike Elfman's Spider-Man theme, but I didn't find it something that I walked out of the theater in either of the first two movies kind of humming to myself like I would like William Superman, for example. And I think Young tweaked it and worked it to such a way that, okay, now it's a little more epic, it's a little more defined, but there were themes for, for so many things. You had Sandman's theme, which was both 
he actually had two. He had one that was very tragic mm -hmm. that I really liked. You know, the scene where, where, you know, the scene that I was essentially called the birth of the Sandman after he gets disintegrated right, right. and he comes back again and he's now a creature of sand. The music in that scene is incredibly powerful for the inherent tragedy of that character. Just great. And then a few scenes later, when the cops spot him and he goes into the back of the truck full of sand, a completely different Sandman theme emerges, what I call Monster Sandman. Right, ex ex yeah, exactly. I was going to say it's like a monster movie theme. That's it, right. it is. It's, a, it's a very much a monster theme. Just great, and I love it. And that theme recurs a lot through the entire movie. Harry and Peter have their own theme throughout the fight that they have in both instances. And Venom... Uh, to a degree, or not so much Venom, but the the black yeah. symbiote in itself, the black costume, the black symbiote, and eventually when uh, when Eddie becomes Venom, all have a theme that I love in this movie. That I mean, that theme carries very well throughout the whole movie. It actually supersedes Spider-Man's theme in the opener of the movie when the the symbiote comes into the opening credits. Right, it's like it swallows the Spider-Man theme up, and that's yeah. How I mean, how perfect is that for this movie, right? Yeah, it, it, what you're seeing during the credits is the symbiote kind of swallowing up the costume at the same time the theme is swallowing up Spider-Man's theme in the music as well. So again, the music really is a character in the film just as much as any other character and that to me is the sign of a great score a great composer because that's what the best of the Williams films are you know the one I'll always come back to is Jaws the music oh, yeah. is the shark yeah and in this the music is not so much a character or you know one of the characters we're seeing on the screen but it's it's giving more life to the characters that are there, particularly um, the Sandman and the, the the symbiote. And I love that. I think it really, really works to a degree where, uh, you know, again, I'll, I'll go out on a limb. I'll say it. I think the score to this particular superhero movie, Spider-Man 3, is one of the best that we've gotten in recent times because... I am a film score guy. That's all I listen to is film scores. And I get them all as they come out. And I frequently, as I can find them, I will get the complete releases. And I have the complete release to this. And as much as I've liked a lot of the ones that we've gotten in recent days from, you know, everything from Captain America to the Avengers to, you know, whatever, this is one that I continue to come back to again and again and again because it just thrills me. And I, and I get enjoyment of it on a level of some of the classic Williams scores from, from back in the 70s and 80s. It just it feels that good to me. I think it's a very well put together score. And it's such a damn shame that Christopher Young isn't getting more work or more recognition because while I do uh, of the ones I own, I think this is the best one. He's done some other really good stuff too. Now, again, some people are probably going to cringe, but another really good score of his was, um, ghost rider, not a great movie, but man, that's a hell of a good score. Probably the best thing to come out of that movie was his score, but it helped give a level to that movie as well. And I think it definitely gives a level to this movie. So. Right. Well, and I think, you know, as far as 
you know, sort of bland and kind of forgettable superhero scores. I don't want to go too far off topic, or for that matter, bash on other things, because I, I really enjoy Watchmen as a film, but I, I, I listen to that score, and I have to tell you, there's really nothing on there that grabs me. Now, if you feel otherwise, that's totally cool, but I, you know, I've listened to that score a couple of times, and I'm always waiting for the cool part. And one of the things I realize is, you know, I mean, it's it's competent, it's well done, I guess, but there really isn't a cool part, you know? I mean, right. there's that, there's, in fact, really the, probably the best piece of music from that entire film, and again, this is not to bash on it, it's just to say that for it being the best, it doesn't make it all that great. It's the, the prison fight when um, uh, Night Owl and Silk Spectre go in there basically to rescue uh, Rorschach. That's about as good as that score ever got, and it's honestly, it's really not that great. And there's really no moment like that that I can think of in Spider-Man 3 where the music is its just kind of there, but it's not really doing anything. It's all just very perfunctory. All throughout, it's making, it, you know, even when there is no music, it's still, there, there's still some kind of a, an element to it that, well, there's a reason that this isn't, that the, this moment isn't scored. You know, right. but when the the music is going, and in fact, you actually mentioned the um, birth of the Sandman moment a while ago, and I remember sitting in the the theater and watching this stuff, and what it really reminded me of was, especially with the music, was I didn't think John Williams at that moment. I was actually thinking more Shirley Walker from Batman the Animated Series because that yeah. that sounded it was just so kind of tr- sad and tragic and very melodic. But I was thinking, you know, this kind of thing, we saw a lot of that in Batman the Animated Series. And Mm -hmm. I don't remember very many people ever uh, criticizing that. It just kind of felt like it had that same kind of power to it and credibility. And and obviously this is, you know, feature film. I I don't necessarily want to connect it too closely to movie stuff, except to say that it has that same kind of pathos to it. So... Well, I think I've always thought that the best comic book villains are the ones that had a a, a a sense of tragedy to them, a sense of you know the monster, that you know the reluctant monster. So I never really, and again, this is another criticism I've heard of the movie is is the Sandman, and I I don't get it because for one thing, I think Thomas Hayden Church just knocked it out of the park with his portrayal of. I mean, come on, the Sandman in the comics isn't much of a character anyway. I, I don't see him as having like a defined personality, and I couldn't tell you his origins. So if they change that for the movie, which I'm sure they did, I didn't care in the least. I didn't really even need an origin story for the Sandman. I'm glad we got one because I love the scene where he reconstitutes himself. But if the movie had started and he was already the Sandman, I would have lived with that too. Because I, I, you know, at the end of the day, I didn't really care. Mm-hmm. But I like the tragedy that I, I'm going to assume that the movie gave the whole backstory with the daughter and all that because I don't remember any of that from the comics. So that backstory about he's doing all of this to try to save his daughter's life coupled with that theme that as you say very Shirley Walker like 
gives him an element of like Mr. Freeze from Batman the Animated Series, you know, in, in that he, he doesn't really want to be doing what he's doing, but he really doesn't have a choice because he's doing it for love. Right. I like that. I, I like that sort of an element. And some of the best monsters are that way. You know, the, the reluctant monster, the monster that doesn't want to be the monster, but they don't, they just, that's the role they're cast in. I, I like that element to that character. I thought the Sandman was fantastic in this, and I loved uh, the special effects. Uh, another great scene in both the, the the action, the special effects, and particularly the scoring is the scene where Spider-Man goes after the Sandman for the first time, not realizing it is a, you know a, a, a Sandman in the armored car. That entire sequence is fantastic. The scoring is phenomenal in that. And it just gets faster and faster and faster as the the armored car is just completely out of control because at one point the Sandman pegs down the uh, the accelerator and so the thing just keeps gaining more and more speed. If you listen to that scene as you watch it, that's played out in the music. That the 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 music just comes in thrumming and just gets faster and faster and faster and faster up until finally there's the car crash that kind of stops the scene. Listen to that score, especially if you have the opportunity to listen to that score on its own, separate from the movie, and it's just an, just a great piece of music. Right, and I, you know what, I, I, I agree. I could probably sit here all day going on and on about the, uh, about the score. It's, it's in my, as far as like superhero film scores, this is absolutely within my top ten. Now, admittedly, my top ten would probably look a little wonky to some people, but. I don't know. It's it, whatever it says that you know. Coming from me, not a, a, a film score guy, and coming from Scott, who is a film score guy. If he and I are both on the same page about this, I'd like to think that maybe gives a little bit of credibility. So, absolutely. So, <clears throat> now to get back into my notes here a little bit, um, and geez, I, I we could go really anywhere with it now because we're. We didn't exactly leave off where I, I was hoping we would leave off, but um, you know, as far as uh, the film and kind of moving away from like uh, technical stuff, like we've just been talking about in the film itself, you know, the there are issues in this film that Peter has to deal with, and probably the biggest of them are forgiveness and reconciliation, because any way you care to slice it. Peter's going to carry the loss of his uncle with him for the rest of his life. And that pain is never going to go away. It never gets better. It's never okay. It's just something that you just live with forever. So the pain of it isn't going anywhere, but the anger has got to go. Peter's bottled up a lot of bullshit over the years, and it's got to stop. He can't boil away in his anger forever. And to me, to kind of tie it back with, with Sandman, if he keeps treating Sandman as an enemy, Sandman can only return it. They can beat each other up for the rest of their lives, or they can just try to let it go. And again, the symbiote is exacerbating Peter's problem, but it's not creating it. The symbiote is just heightening what's already there. Peter already feels anger and guilt and shame about what happened with Uncle Ben, and the symbiote just mags magnifies that into full-on fucking hatred of Flint Marco, and also a lot of self-loathing. And it, honestly, it 
it doesn't help his relationship with Harry very much either because, like I said, you know, it's left to his own devices. I think Harry or Peter would have shown Harry a lot of mercy. Peter, I think, would always try to reconcile with Harry, and Peter knows that Norman's death was an accident, but it would have been complete self-defense even if it wasn't, but it's Harry's unwillingness to listen as well as his attack on Peter that's really left a bad taste in all of his mouth. And so, as I say, left to his own devices, Peter can work through all of that and constantly try to reach Harry, but he's not left to his own devices in Spider-Man 3. That's the point. The symbiote's there to magnify Peter's moral outrage at Harry for, for being so unfair with him. And, you know, when Peter lobs that pumpkin, that pumpkin bomb back into Harry's face, Peter, influenced by the symbiote, but it's still Peter, turning his back on Harry and their friendship. And again, I'm not trying to beat this to death, but I just want to make sure that this is clear. This is, you know, Peter would not have done that on his own accord. It's, but the anger about Harry acting like such a dipshit, that stuff is all real. Peter doesn't have to just reconcile with and forgive Flint Marco and, and Harry. He, there's, a, there's a level at which he has to forgive himself. He has to forgive Harry. He has, I mean, these, this is all shit that he has got to let go. And, you know, forgive me for saying, but I don't see why I should ignore all of this good character development just because somebody out there thinks that Peter cries too much or he has, you know, goofy dance moves or something like that. You know, I mean, I just don't see why I should leave all that on the table, you know? Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of why I'm glad that we went the route that we went before getting into maybe moments that we, we didn't care so much about. Cause I really wanted to play out more of what I really love about the movie before we get into any, any places where we might agree with the, the critics about the, you know, shortcomings the film may have. I will give them this much is that I, I do find the end of the movie a little dodgy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, again, I don't agree that, that Peter cries too much, for the most part as you know again when it comes to his relationship with with Mary Jane in the breakup scene i think that's perfectly excusable when it comes to the death of his best friend I, you know that's completely excusable the one scene that i i that doesn't quite work for me in the movie though mm-hmm. is the scene where the sandman comes to him uh late in the movie right after the big fight and basically, Peter ends up, uh, you know, giving his his forgiveness to the Sandman and all. They have the little teary moment between the two of them, and then the Sandman just kind of blows away. I'll be honest, I, I never quite cared for that scene. It's not that I'm not about forgiveness and everything. I am. It's just, for one thing, his best friend's laying downstairs bleeding out. But also, it's like all of a sudden not only is all forgiven regarding uncle Ben, but just like two minutes ago, the Sandman was beating the living shit out of Spider-Man trying to kill him. Now all of a sudden he's in front of him going, I never wanted to be this. And I'm like, okay, this is really nice. But if you didn't want to be this, then why were you pounding me flat? Not, you know, two minutes ago. So that scene plays a little awkwardly to me, but a little something, something to add to that actually. Okay. Um, the flaws, at least as I see it, is, you know, basically, there's really no way around it. Basically, Sandman gets away with theft and very possibly murder. Spider-Man pretty much just lets him go. 
And it's as simple right. as that. Sandman is responsible for. I didn't want to have my, you know, uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm just going to peel back the curtain a little bit in my in my uh, professional life. I'm not a lawyer myself, but the majority of my career, uh, my professional life has been spent working either for or with attorneys. And so I'd like to think that I know a little something, something about the law. And as best I can tell, Sandman is responsible for grand theft, grand theft auto, breaking and entering, aggravated assault, assault of police officers, conspiracy to commit armed robbery, armed robbery, conspiracy to commit homicide, attempted homicide, very possibly homicide itself, conspiracy to commit kidnapping, kidnapping, larceny, and honestly, who the fuck knows what else? But that, those are the things that I could find. And Spider-Man lets him go. I'm sorry, it's not Spider-Man's business to let him go. Now, I realize that it plays into the themes of the movie of <clears throat> all the things that I was just talking about of forgiveness and reconciliation and all that stuff. It Spider-Man needed to let him go on a thematic level. But honestly, on a common sense level, on a plot level, this man is a criminal. I don't care what his excuses are. He broke the law. It's for a judge to sort this all out now. And fucking Spider-Man just let him go. And so this is – I mean I, I've only seen a minority of people actually comment on that. But this is one of those things that you know, just to be intellectually honest, yes, this is a it, – it's not just a, a – a flaw with the movie it's actually a very big flaw with the movie so anyway sorry to interrupt but i knew i wasn't going to get a chance to do it otherwise no no no, that's fine i just that said though it doesn't take me out of the movie and it doesn't ruin the movie for me and i wonder is that one of the things that does ruin it for other people I, see, i'm just wondering given the amount of awesome that i think that is inherent in this movie i would like to know What's the tipping point for other people? Where what are, the, what are the things that eventually get them to the, you know, giving the thumbs down as opposed to the thumbs up for this particular movie? Because while I I do have my qualms with it here and there, overall I'm still overwhelmingly positive about the movie and will give it a big thumbs up. And that I, you know I'm not saying I give a pass to the things that that bother me, but. I mean, I can find flaws or, or criticisms or sometimes even fatal flaws with some of my favorite films. I mean, given enough time, I, I could go through my favorite superhero movies, you know, Superman and the Avengers and all these. I'm sure I could find nitpicks and giant gaping plot holes and everything else. But at the end of the day, if if it's successful and it gives me enough awesome, then I'm kind of able to overlook those things. And it works the same way with this movie. I'm not crazy about the dance scene. I'll be honest with you. When I rewatched it for this episode that we're doing, I kind of skipped past the dance scene. I don't hate it, but I didn't need to watch it again either. I find enough other things in this that are, are super enjoyable to me that, eh, you know, if they've got one clunker of a scene, then it, it doesn't destroy the movie for me. It's kind of the same way with that Sandman scene. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm not crazy about... For one, I'm not crazy about the little teary moment between the two of them. It's just a little awkward. I'm really not crazy about Spider-Man just letting him go. But everything else in that scene, that, that final battle scene, and, and then you know a moment later he goes to Harry's side, 
all of that wrapped around one scene that I'm a little awkward with, eh, I can forgive it because I like everything else that's going on around it. So right. I wonder what it is that, that ruined it for other people that they just don't seem to, to dig it. And I sure do hear an awful lot of bashing, but that's the funny thing. I hear an awful lot of bashing without a lot of specifics. Well, one of the specifics that I've seen is that, and honestly, you know, these are things that I, I don't agree or disagree. I just have to acknowledge that, you know what, they have a point, but I'm not going to, I don't understand taking it to the level that they have, but the naysayers, they do, they, they actually have two main things here that I think, you know what, we need to at least consider. The first is the conclusion of the first, second, and third Spider-Man movies are really not that different from each other in the big picture, right? Mm -hmm. The supervillain kidnaps Mary Jane basically in an attempt to force uh, Spider-Man's hand, flush him out in the open, basically so that he can kill him, or they can kill him. And but uh, she's pretty much the uh, basically bait for the trap. And so the first time it happens, well, whatever. That's just the, the movie that Sam Raimi wanted to make. The second time it happened, well, it is, a, emotionally speaking, this is a kind of a different context. There are different things at stake now uh, in kidnapping Mary Jane this time versus before. But then by the time the third movie, it's like, okay, motherfucker, I'm sick of you know context and all this stuff. I mean, it gets to the point where... You need to come up with a brand new fucking idea because three movies now we've you know there have been three movies and they've all ended basically in a kind of similar way where the uh, the uh, villain kidnaps uh, not even just some random girl Mary Jane specifically and basically trying to force Spider-Man out in the open and there's got to be another way you know for people that know damn good and well. Spider-Man's secret identity, it shouldn't be this difficult for them to smoke him out. At least, and by that I mean in the third movie. I mean, Venom knows that that Peter is Spider-Man. He doesn't, does he really need to bait a trap at this point? You know, did we really need to go there? So there's that. But then the other thing is, this is yet another movie where, in this case, two supervillains dis- uh, discover Spider-Man's secret identity, right? We had it with the Green Goblin and in the first Spider-Man. And again, there's comic book precedent on that, so I can let that slide. Dr. Octopus in Spider-Man 2, which at the, at least at the time it happened, I think it's mixed. You know, you could argue it either way if he really knew uh, Spider-Man's secret identity. But then, in, in the comics, I mean, but then you get into the, in, into the third movie where, honestly, guys, I mean... It, do you just not have any more original ideas? Is this it? So, you know, again, I, I see that argument. I don't completely agree with it, but I see that argument, right? And so that's that's the that's what I'm going for. That those are two common criticisms that it just seems like that's a weird a weird hill to choose to die on. But nevertheless, that's what people have chosen. <laughs> so the only other serious criticism I ever had with this one actually extends to all three of the films. So it's not even necessarily a a criticism just of Spider-Man three is that I, I think he spends far too much time with his mask off. Right. Tommy McGuire. And it seems worse maybe a little bit in this movie, but uh, well, then again, I mean, there was the entire 
stopping the train sequence in in Spider-Man 2 where he didn't have his mask on. I understand that that Tobey Maguire is a big name actor and all that and they're paying a lot of money for him and you know a- any actor out there is going to want to get their face shown you know in their movie especially when they're the star of the film. But I think there comes a point where if you've accepted the role and you've accepted the character and you knew what the character looked like going into it, that you kind of have to put your ego in check and play the character. And Spider-Man, you know, love it or hate it, Spider-Man is a masked character, fully masked. And to spend so much of all three films without his mask on by this third installment really started to get on my nerves because I've had it pointed out to me so many times that there's the scene where they're showing on the nightly news that Mary Jane is being held in this giant web and they zoom right in on, you know, right in on her Mm -hmm. in the back window of the cab, Mm -hmm. you know, perfect clarity on her face. And then a couple of scenes later, we have Venom and Spider-Man fighting in this web and Spider-Man doesn't have his mask on through pretty much the entire fight. And nobody in the news media that's there at the scene manages to, to, to capture a shot of this at all when they were just able to zoom in that tightly on Mary Jane right, yeah. up in the giant web. It, it just it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's one of those things that you're not really supposed to think about because – and I kind of hate the expression. It's comic booky, mm-hmm. But in a certain sense – that's what I like about the movie is that it is comic booky. It feels like an issue of Spider-Man, and that's what I really like about it. I'm a little bit perturbed that more people don't like it on that level that it feels like a Spider-Man comic. And and some of the nitpicks that they have with it, I think, are legitimate nitpicks when you're talking about a movie, but they're things that I think that they would perfectly forgive if it was an issue of Spider-Man. So that's a little weird for me because this feels like an issue put to the big screen for me. And that's what I, I like. I just like the comic book feel of the film without feeling like Joel Schumacher made it. You know what I mean? Right. Because there's a difference between feeling like a comic book and comic bookie. There, uh, there's a huge difference in those two things for me personally. And I think this is one of the best films for capturing the feel of an actual issue of something. I like it on that level. I do too. And now to be fair to the critics, and I do want to cut them a little bit of slack on this. If I, my, my personal opinion is this, is that if Spider-Man 3 came out today just as it is, I think people would probably respond to it better now than they did back in 2007. And I think the reason for that is because the the popular appetite for comic book movies, it's gotten so wide now that, yeah, sure, these people embraced the Chris Nolan Batman. There's no two ways about it. But they've also taken – I'm. I guess basic, more extreme stuff, shall we say, like the Avengers, they've taken that to heart as well. And both of those franchises ended up turning out billion-dollar entries back – when was it? 2012? Mm -hmm. And 
I think that Spider-Man is very, as far as tone, it's it's a lot closer to the Avengers, and maybe even more, uh, in in terms of just a comic book feel, even more so than the Avengers. I think if it were to come out today, people would feel differently about it. But it came out in a time and a place when I think people still kind of wanted a little bit more of a grounded, more realistic tone from their comic book fare. And this was a little bit against the, I guess, the the popular uh, mood, you know, the, the the public mood of what people wanted from from comic book movies. This was maybe a bridge too far for some. Whereas if, like I said, if it came out today, I truly believe it would be a little bit of a different story. Maybe not so much in terms of box office. Although maybe, because if you look at Spider-Man's box office, it's actually kind of funny. It's constantly diminishing returns. Every movie earns less than the last. But I think if, at the very least among fans, you know, the, the core fan base, the target audience, I think people would have a better appreciation of it now versus then. So, Now, are you talking because of the cosmic element of the movie? Is that, you know, with, with Venom coming from space and such? Is that what you mean? Right, yeah. Well, I mean, basically the movie just as it is right now, not changing a thing, but... It's just that I think that what people are willing to tolerate in comic book films now versus what they were willing to tolerate back then, right. it's just so different now. It really is. And I think for the better, it's actually gotten a lot better. You don't need to necessarily make everything so heavy and gritty and grounded and realistic. You can have a, a, a film like like Spider-Man that's just I, – and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense at all, but it's somehow more – comic book oriented or comic book heavy however you know whatever word you want to use you can get by with that more easily today than you could back in 2007 that's something you know you you raise a great point that i hadn't even considered before but that may likely be some of the issue with this movie is that maybe now it's funny because i was only really taking the criticisms I've heard from the from the geek community into consideration here, but when you're talking about you know the diminishing diminishing returns and just box office total, maybe that does play into it. Is that you know in the first Spider-Man, you know you you've got you know obviously a Spider-Man and then his villain, you know the Green Goblin flying around in his glider, a lot of fanciful stuff, but for the most part, people really enjoyed it and nothing was necessarily a bridge too far. Then you've got the first sequel, you know, a guy with mechanical arms. All right, we can buy that. But then you get to this one and you've got, you know, the symbiote from space. You've got a guy made of sand. You've got, you know, the, the Venom character that comes in later in the movie. You've got another, gli- uh, another guy in a flying, you know, hoverboard, essentially. Maybe it was a little bit too much. Maybe... At some point, it just became a bridge too far for the general mass audience. And so you, you have a really good point. You know, now that we've actually seen a movie that teamed up, you know, the Hulk and, you know, uh, the God of Thunder and Iron Man and all these things, maybe they would be a little more accepting. I don't know. It's, it's hard to say, but it's definitely possible because... I mean, look, we're about to get a, a big screen movie with a with a talking raccoon, for God's sakes. And most people are pretty jazzed about this. Right. Whereas a couple of years ago, no chance. We had, hell. you know, we had. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think 
people were quite, you know, mainstream, I'm talking about mainstream audiences. I don't know that they were quite ready for that because we had this movie and another movie that I always like to point to, again, not a great movie, but I think a hell of a lot better than what it, you know, it, it deserved to do better than what it did. And it, it deserves to have a better reputation than it has would be Rise of the Silver Surfer. I think ultimately the the problem with that movie is that it scaled itself back at the 11th hour instead of just going, you know, going for broke with Galactus. If it had done that and really busted the whole cosmic element wide open and embraced its own origins and its own roots, I think at least in the, the fan community, I think it would be more highly regarded than it is today. But that said, there's your first real attempt to kind of broaden the the Marvel comic book universe right there, and it, it met it met very mixed you know reaction both from mainstream and from the fans. I never really considered Spider-Man three in that way, but to a certain degree it does because yeah, there's a lot more fanciful stuff in this one movie than what had come prior to it. I, when it comes to Marvel, anyway. I agree. I agree. And um, actually, I've got a few other little bits of business in my notes. Uh, do you have Do you have time to go through this? Or absolutely. Okay. Um, one of the things that Scott has talked a little bit about, but I kind of haven't, is is uh, Venom. Another thing in all of this is Venom. Now, I'm just going to put it out on on Front Street. I've never been a huge Venom fan, and to the extent that I like the character at all, like Scott said, I mostly enjoy the Michelini McFarlane stuff from Amazing Spider-Man. And by the way, you know what? Actually, time out even from that. Since we're on the fucking subject, you know, you want to talk about a crowded story? Go back and read Amazing Spider-Man 298 to 300 sometime. All right? It's strange to think that the very fucking story that introduced Venom into the comics was when you think about it it's really uh, it's a three-part story the first two parts of which really don't have much at all to do with venom except for like the last page or two mm-hmm. and then that's it you know that <clears throat> i i find that spider-man 3 is actually very much of a piece with the comics in terms of the way it went about introducing venom you know he basically mm-hmm. showed up at the last minute here in the movie just as he did in the comics i just i don't see what the problem is here now again like I said, it may very well be that I just don't give a damn about about Venom. I'm I'm willing to con- to consider that, but and it, it, I guess another thing is I don't care if Eddie Brock or the characterization of Venom don't exactly line up with the comics either. I mean, that literally means less than nothing to me because I'm annoyed by Venom's mere presence just to start with. So, you know, to argue about how close this depiction is to the comics to me is kind of picking that shit out of pepper. And like I say, partly it's because I just don't dig on Venom a whole lot. But the other thing is that Raimi seems to have a real affection for, in my view, two eras of Spider-Man. The Stan Lee, John Romita era, and then, like you were saying, that sort of uh, early to late 80s uh, Spider-Man where it it really – he kind of had a lot of different writers, but I think that probably the biggest one would be Roger Stern. Yep. Those seem seem to be his his main influences. Speaking as a guy who knows absolutely nothing about Spider-Man comics, so whatever you think that's worth. But that seems to be where where Raimi's heart lies. And honestly, who can blame him? Because that's some seriously cool stuff. 
And so I think Raimi did a lot to capture that flavor of Spider-Man, and I think in a lot of cases it paid off. But I think there's there's a sense in which there's really no denying that Venom kind of clashes with the a little bit of uh, of the tone and style of the movie, that he's really the one kind of dark and, I, I don't know, not macabre, but near macabre element of the movie that everyone else, you know, they, the other villains, they tend to have sort of grounded... And when you come right down to it, they're really not that dark as far as agendas are concerned. Venom is different. And the impression I've gotten is that Raimi might not have ever adapted Venom into a movie if he'd had his druthers. And that's, again, it's an easy thing to believe based upon the the kind of clash and style that, that Venom represents. But I'm mentioning all of this to say that I think Harry and Sandman are more than enough to occupy Spider-Man's attention in the movie – but nobody seems to care what I think. We have Venom in the movie, and I agree. It does kind of make for a little bit of an uneven narrative, but to me, that's again, it's, it sort of lines up with the comics. But you can't argue that, that Venom ultimately doesn't earn his place because Eddie Brock is a funhouse mirror of, of Peter Parker. Right. He feels wronged, and he's cheated of what he thinks he deserves, and he blames all of that on Peter. And in this particular case, his origin, his I guess his motive for having a grudge against Spider-Man makes a hell of a lot more sense in the movie than it does in the comics. I mean, you go back and read the comics, the, uh, that whole bit with you know the Sin Eater and you know Eddie being through. Really, it's not anybody's fault, but. Eddie worked at a rival newspaper. He thought he'd uncovered the, the Sin Eater's true identity. The story was published, and then later the truth came out, and the Sin Eater is actually somebody else, and Eddie was wrong. He was humiliated and forced to work for tabloids, and he was forced to spew Venom, thus his name. It doesn't – you know, that stuff – I mean, in the comics, it's it's one of those things that, you know, okay, whatever, I'll buy it. It's It's a comic book, and I don't really give a damn about this character anyway. His motives in the movie – are a hell of a lot more airtight than they are in the comics. To obtain the Daily, Bu- the, uh, Daily Bugle staff photographer job, Eddie basically fakes a picture of Spider-Man robbing a bank. Peter catches him in the act, and then he exposes him as a fraud. And thanks to Photoshop fakery, Eddie can't get an honest job anywhere in the, in, in, anywhere in the city. And I like Spider-Man 3's version of that origin story better because it gives Eddie a more believable reason to hate Peter. Right. Now, true, Eddie still did this all to himself, but he's he's got this weird fucked up inability to take responsibility for his own actions. It forces him to blame Peter. And let's be honest, I mean Peter was wearing the black costume at the time, so you could argue maybe he would have handled the situation differently somehow. Well, there's no way to know how, but he might not have necessarily gone for the jugular like that. But since he was influenced by the black costume, Peter just wasn't in his right mind. He went in for the kill, and Eddie's the one that had to deal with it. And I guess in terms of career and you know his long-term prospects, Brock pretty much is dead. There's really no way he can get a respectable job now, and he's got a very believable axe to grind. So, you know, again, I mean, people can bitch and complain all they want about you know Venom and the imbalance that he he kind of imposes upon the narrative to me. I mean, he's, you know, that to me is, that's kind of eye of the beholder, but for what we do get, 
I think it turns out just really fucking well. And so, you know, I'm, I just like it is what I'm saying. So anyway, I, what, have you, what have you got? Well, it just occurs to me that I don't think that this film or, or Raimi in particular, I, I've never really heard either one get much credit for the fact that I think a really nice balancing job tightwire act is performed here between being very faithful to the comics and homaging the comics quite a number of times in particular shots and things and also incorporating a lot of the best elements of you know arguably the other uh you know at least in the the, the popular zeitgeist of you know what people identify with Spider-Man, which was the '90s Spider-Man TV show. You know the cartoon. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people grew up with that, and that I'm sure influenced a lot of people's perceptions of Spider-Man and of the character. I think when it comes to the black costume part of this movie, and see, I'm I'm totally with you in the fact of I could have lived without Venom. I, I have no attachment or affinity to Venom. I enjoyed the character when he came along originally, but got tired of him very quickly. Yes. But at the same rate, it, you can't really have one without the other. I'm glad we got the black costume saga because the black costume, now I'm talking the, the comic book version. I like the one in the movie here, but I wish the highlights had been white like in the comic book version, because I liked that dynamic that it was black and white, not just black. This one is just black. Right. But given that I really liked the look of the character, you can't have the black costume saga without eventually involving venom because that's the natural progression of that story. That's where it led. Right now, arguably this could have set up venom for being the big bad in the fourth movie, but I get the feeling with these movies that it was never really a trilogy to begin with that they were doing them kind of star Trek style is that if they were successful enough, we'll do another one. But now correct. somebody write in and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I never heard that this was a trilogy guaranteed from the outset. H- have you ever heard anything different um, to that effect? No, I haven't. The reason I call it a trilogy is because it really does have a trilogy sort of three act structure to it. Not just, oh, sure. not, and not just in the angle that it's three movies. I mean, a three, you can have three movies that doesn't make something a trilogy. What makes something a trilogy is whenever a character or series of characters, basically there's a, there's a clear uh, character arc, there's a clear plot, and I actually get into this in one of my other episodes uh, on this very subject because I defend another infamously, infamously uh, maligned uh, part three. We, we can talk about it off the air because I think you might dig it. But to me, a, a trilogy is, is, is a specific thing, and I'm not trying to ramble here, but what I'm saying is – it, it the structure of this is obviously it to me anyway it just screams trilogy that there is a conclusion to this story that happens in Spider-Man three. You can continue it after this, but if and this is obviously what ended up happening. If you were to cut it off after Spider-Man three, you basically got a complete story therein, and to me that's what makes it a trilogy. But no, to answer your question, I don't remember anyone ever outright saying we are making a trilogy. Yeah, I, I don't either. So I, I guess they're you know they're they could have always potentially set this up that this would be 
the black costume saga and then the fourth or possibly even further down the road movie would have been the black costume comes back as venom but without that guarantee of further films they essentially if you're committed to doing the black costume saga then you pretty much have to bring venom in mm-hmm. so i i take venom as well, you can't have one without the other, and I really want the black costume. I really enjoy that, so I'll take Venom as well. So I just wanted to clarify my position that I'm no Venom fan. Um, but that said, again, I, I don't think Raimi or this film get enough credit for all the things it did right, because there are some iconic shots in this film, particularly where... Uh, when when Peter becomes the black costume Spider-Man for the very first time, there's a great shot where he drops down from a really great height that is essentially the same shot right from the comics of him. I'm trying to remember what he says, something about something about look out world. Here comes the new Spider-Man or something to that effect. It was like the, the final, you know, final panel, full page splash of the black costume Spider-Man essentially falling straight at us, the reader. So that shots right out of the comics. And there's another one a little bit later where he goes to the bell tower and, you know, the, the shot comes in and it's all raining and he's just kind of moping sitting on the side of this, this steeple and then eventually he drops down into the bell tower. Mm. That shot of him dropping down is right out of the comics. And the whole church thing was right out of the comics as well. But then there's a good number of elements of the movie that are taken right from, and I think it was a three-part story in the Spider-Man animated series, which took great liberties with the original comic book telling of the story. But I thought it was really well done and in a lot of ways, this movie is almost a big screen adaptation, more of the cartoon version of the black costume saga than it is the, the movie, uh, excuse me, the comic book version, which is fine by me because they're both very, very well, you know, very well done, very good stories. And the last thing I don't think it gets enough credit for is that if you're going to do Venom, then this is the version of Venom that I would rather see, is the original McFarlane version from, like, Spider-Man 298 through 300. Because as soon as Venom started to come back, he got sillier with each progressive return, to a, a point now that he's a completely ridiculous character. He's this big, freakish monster with this slavering tongue and these jagged teeth. Yeah. And, I hate that shit. But the original version was essentially he looked exactly like Spider-Man, except he had this giant evil toothy shark grin. And that's the version that's presented in this movie. And I like that because just that Cheshire, you know, it's like an evil Cheshire cat grin. Just that grin is enough to both differentiate the character, but also just give you the chills like, Ooh, this is a scary badass Spider-Man. Right. And I like that. He he says very little as Venom, which again I think is to the credit of the the very small screen time that Venom has. The less he can speak, the better. 
And I like that. He really doesn't say a whole lot, but what he says essentially just moves the plot forward. The only, honestly, the only real criticism I have of Venom at all in the film is that it has the same thing that I, I bitch about to- with Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man as he spends too much of it without his mask on because he has to keep constantly showing you, what's the dude's name, Topher Grace? Yeah. They keep showing you his face. Like the, the, the Venom thing keeps peeling away to show you Topher Grace's face underneath. And it's like, okay, I, I get it. I know who he is. Put it back as Venom's face. And that that drives me a little nuts. But beyond that, I like it. It, it sets up slowly over the course of the whole movie. He becomes Venom. He's Venom for a few scenes. Basically sets up the big battle at the end. And... By the end of the movie, he's right back off the table again with not really much chance that we're ever going to see him again had there been subsequent movies past this point. So what is everybody bitching about? You got him. You got him out of the way. He was a pretty good interpretation while you got him, if you like Venom, and that's it. So I'm wondering, the people that complain about him, is it that, A, he was even in the film in the first place, which, okay, point, or... That well, I really wanted the big slavery tongue looking version. Well, well yeah, sorry, but that version snot. sucks. So yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, look, I, hey, dude, your mouth to God's ear, dude. I'm I'm gonna be. I would be the last person. In fact, you know what? I'm gonna go out on a limb. And I think what I said at the beginning of the episode was, I like the uh, the Michelini McFarlane era of Venom. I don't even think that's true. I think, I think what I really like ultimately is. Spider Amazing Spider-Man number 300. Really, I think mm-hmm. that's it. Um if you know to me anything that they've done with Venom ever since like you said it it really is kind of diminishing returns. I don't think well whatever. I'm I'm I'd basically just be repeating what you said. Now, I do actually have a a question for you and I'm I don't have a dog in this race either way. I just want to know what you think. In the comics it's pretty it's pretty evident that the guy who actually killed Uncle Ben is the is the thief that Spider-Man let escape. Spider-Man let him escape, and because of that, this guy went on later and he blew Uncle Ben away, right? Mm-hmm. In the in the in Spider-Man Three, what comes out is that he had an accomplice, i.e., Flint Marco, and basically the thief ran up behind Flint Marco, startled him. His gun went off. He accidentally pulled the trigger, and he shot uh, Ben to death. He didn't mean to do it. He'd undo it if he could. Blah, 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 blah. It wasn't the thief that Spider-Man let go, though, that did it. Ultimately, it was it, it was uh, Flint Marco. Now, how do you feel about that? First time I saw, that, uh, saw this movie, that was a huge bone of contention with me, to a point where I probably said something out loud. It really bothered me a lot because Spider-Man has one of the best and one of the like quintessential origin stories in comics, in my opinion. Mm. I mean, there's there's really only a handful uh, as many comic book heroes as there are out there. There's really only a small handful of them that have truly like awesome origins to a point where they're they're like our modern myths. Mm -hmm. Spider-Man's is one of them. And it, it has bugged me tremendously that this origin keeps getting screwed with over the years and people keep trying to, I don't know, improve it or something. Well, it's already great the way it is. Why mess with it? 
And so when I saw this movie the first time, that really annoyed the hell out of me. But then I remember because, you know, not long after it shows you in flashback in this movie that, oh, yeah, that's right. They had already screwed up the origin with this anyway. I'm not a big fan of Spider-Man 1, the first Raimi film, mostly because I thought it was telling a really good story up until they got to the actual death of Uncle Ben and the whole Peter chasing down the, the villain and everything cornering him in the in the warehouse and then no matter how you slice it it looks like spider-man kills the guy now i do like that there's a line of dialogue in this movie that attempts to put that right but still at the end of the day the perception that i think joe public who maybe didn't really know spider-man's origin from the get-go walking into that movie Mm -hmm. the popular perception is spider-man killed the guy And that never sat right with me because that's not what Spider-Man did. He went and he caught the guy. I think that's very important in this story. That he caught the guy and when he caught him, that's when he realized, oh my God, this is the man that I let go. I killed my uncle through my inaction. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very powerful story and a very powerful identifier for children with the character of Spider-Man. And they, I'm sorry, But in this instance, as much as I respect Sam Raimi as a filmmaker, he screwed up. I never liked that with Spider-Man 1. And so this movie, essentially, I I ended up giving that scene a pass with it being Flint Marco because I was already dissatisfied anyway. So at this point, I really don't care what they do. They, They didn't get it right, so... Just making it worse is it's doesn't really make any difference ultimately in the long run. Um, I do hope that one day we get a Spider-Man movie that if they have to keep telling the origin story, eventually they'll get it right. I have not seen Amazing Spider-Man, but my kids tell me they still didn't get it right with that one either. So that's a shame. Well, I think it's all it's really it's all in how you look at it. But uh, do you do you care if I spoil it or? No, go ahead. All right. Well, it's been a while since I've seen it, but basically, the uh, I guess the the classic version of, of uh, you know Amazing uh, Fantasy number fifteen, you know, as Spider-Man's basically with it's not the bookie, but <clears throat> I don't know who is that. It's like uh, the the paymaster or whoever it's like that the, is. Yeah, yeah. Um, basically, you know, the villain, uh, the uh, the the thief comes in. You know, it's like, hey, stick him up, and you know. Guy says, "Dude, why did why didn't you help me out?" Spider-Man says, "Well, fuck it, dude. It's not my problem. Fuck you." Goes on his business, right? That's the comic book version. That's not exactly what happens with um, Amazing Spider-Man. Basically, Peter gets Peter, not Spider-Man. Peter gets first of all, you know, uh, screwed over by a store clerk who won't sell him some um, uh, chocolate milk because he's like three or four cents off or something like that, right? And so, you know, the thief comes in, robs the place, you know, pistol whips the uh, cashier, tosses Peter uh, his uh, chocolate milk, even though Peter didn't fucking pay for it. So, you know, on top of now all of this stuff, Peter is now a kind of accessory to uh, assault, not just robbery now, but assault. And now he's also a thief himself, if you have a problem with that. And... Ultimately, he doesn't actually come face to face with the guy and say, oh, my God, it's the guy that I let go. 
he kind of deduces that, oh my God, the guy that shot my uncle is the same guy that I, that I let slip. If I had taken action in the shop, my uncle would still be alive. He, so there's a sense in which he kind of goes through the same sort of arc. It's just done in a different order. So he becomes Spider-Man specifically to find the guy. He realizes that, you know, after he realizes that it's the guy let go, he becomes Spider-Man, you know, really to go looking for him. And then he kind of, by circumstance, becomes less of a, you know, short-term vigilante looking for one guy to being a sort of a superhero in general. And he does that without coming face-to-face with his... It's just it's a little more cerebral, I think, than than it is literal in the comics. And I don't know if I like that or if I dislike it. It's just it's one of those things that I'm starting to think that if you're attached at all to the comic book version of Spider-Man's origin, all I can tell you is, you know, dude, you need to thicken up your skin. You're never going to see a good version of that in live action, period, end of story, because it it has not had good fortune so far. Does he find the guy? Not in the movie, no. He's still out there. <clears throat> and that's one of those things that, you know, I think... This is one of those things I think they are actually... They are going into a trilogy with this, that he's probably going to find them in the third movie, and then that's going to be how the third movie reflects back on the first movie, the way a trilogy kind of should do, and all of that. But I don't know. I mean, it just... To me, it feels like at this point, the damage there is it, it's done. And so, you know, there's really no way that you can totally fair i mean and to be honest i mean he he gets everything out of it that he needs to get but what i'm saying is that if what you're looking for is a kind of you know uh apples to apples sort of adaptation of the comic book version of his origin it's not exactly that it's not even close so it it sounds intriguing though in the aspect of it it almost sounds like it combines elements of two origin stories that I really like, you know, Spider-Man's obviously, but also Batman's because I like the idea of Batman existing to avenge his parents' murder to track down the guy that did it. Because to this day, my favorite Batman story is still the one where he finally does confront Joe chill about what he did. That basically, you know, you created me. Mm-hmm. I love that. So if this current spider-man trilogy plays out that way yeah maybe i'll have to maybe i will have to get on board eventually after all because honestly the the main reason i didn't see the uh you know the first one the amazing spider-man is for one i thought the costume looked ridiculous but also i don't understand why they rebooted it so so very close to the end of the first trilogy. Uh, and that just seemed really weird. If you're going to do that, then it seems like you'd want to give a little time and space, especially if you're going to reboot it and then tell the origin story again. Well, we just had the or- origin story, what, less than a decade ago. So that seemed really strange to me to want to do that. But my kids enjoyed it. I mean, they said that, you know, they had their qualms with it, but they said that they enjoyed it. The new one looks interesting although i i still say that it looks more like cutscenes from a video game than an actual movie but it looks interesting and i think they want to go see it so who knows but i'm intrigued by that particular version of the origin because yes it's not comic book faithful but it sounds like they're getting the tone of it right in the aspect of what i take away from that part of the origin is that you know that realization that this was this was my doing 
by by my inaction, I caused this to happen. I don't get that from Raimi's version at all. I get more of he realizes that this is the same guy, obviously, but I get more of a, an instant gratification. You know, you killed my uncle, so I'm going to kill you. And he knocks the guy out of the window and it's that that's it. So with that particular movie, it almost feels like overdone with why does he even become Spider-Man at this point? Because I don't get the whole guilt over what happened. It just it feels all nicely wrapped up in one package, awkwardly wrapped up, but wrapped up nonetheless. I don't get the whole thing of now I must become Spider-Man to to ever make penance for what I did or what I didn't do. I, I don't get that from Raimi's version, but it sounds like this version you're talking about might actually play that a little bit better. I don't, I don't know. I'd have to see it to judge for myself, but it sounds like it does. Well, <clears throat> as, as far as the existence of a reboot, uh, actually everything that I'm going to say next, uh, let me just preface it by saying a reboot was unnecessary. The Raimi verse had, plenty of juice to it there were plenty of stories that you could still tell mm-hmm. and this was you didn't need you didn't need to do this you didn't need to reboot now with that caveat having you know kind of been laid out there i really enjoyed the amazing spider-man and i think one of the uh, one of the main reasons for that it's not just the fact that he has mechanical web shooters although i guess there is that. Honestly, I didn't really care very much about the organic web shooters, except that it's harder and maybe impossible to have that awkward moment where, you know, Spider-Man basically runs out of web fluid, you know, at the moment he most needs it and everything. You kind of got that in Amazing Spider-Man 2, but that's really not a repeatable phenomenon. But it just kind of felt to me like, you know, Amazing Spider-Man, it took us... It's it's kind of ironic too for it being called the Amazing Spider-Man. There is a little bit of a of an ultimate influence there, where they weren't necessarily just looking at the mainstream Marvel universe for their inspiration. And you know, I read a lot of Ultimate Spider-Man. I really enjoyed it up to a point anyway. I really enjoyed it, and so that part of it actually works really well for me. But the other thing that works well for me is that it's not Mary Jane that he's fixated upon. It's it's Gwen Stacy. Now he's going to high school with Gwen Stacy. So if you know you're you're a, a devotee of the mainstream uh, uh, Spider-Man universe where he didn't meet Gwen until college, well, dude, you're up shit creek without a paddle. So I, I don't know what to tell you here. But it just kind of feels like even the existence of this franchise, for as much as I liked Amazing Spider-Man, the existence of this kind of feels inappropriate, right? Because basically, my understanding of the story, and if I'm wrong about this, you listeners, just feel free to let me know, trennismagnus at gmail.com. My understanding was that Sony basically wanted, uh, they wanted Spider-Man 4 released in the summer of 2011, and Raimi was absolutely willing to do Spider-Man 4. He just was not willing to do Spider-Man 4 set for release in 2011. He wanted it to be released in 2012. He basically wanted an extra year to, to make the movie, especially since I think he was, going to be doing, he was going to be shooting Spider-Man 4 and 5 at the same time. He basically wanted an extra year to do his work. And he said 2012 is – look, this is my red line. I am not going to do this for 2011. There's just fucking – there's no way. 
I'm going to do, we're going to do this movie in 2012, or I walk, period, end of story. Well, I guess he was expecting Sony to blink on that because they said, okay, well, it was, it's been nice working with you. Take it easy. And so they fast track a reboot for release in 2012. So it's like, what the fuck was the point of all of this? You know, uh, you wanted the movie for 2011. You didn't get it. You fired the director. And now you're going to end up doing things his way anyway because there's no way you can get the movie going by 2011. What the fuck was the point of this entire exercise, you know? So the the existence of the reboot feels kind of illegitimate to me for that reason. It didn't need to happen. The movies were still profitable. They were still critically very well received. I mean, Spider-Man 3 had some naysayers, but it just there was this was not a fatal entry in, in in the franchise by any stretch of the imagination. And anyway, I think that there's a lot to enjoy about the Amazing Spider-Man. I'm really in, looking forward to Amazing Spider-Man 2. It looks like it's going to be a lot of fun, but at the same time, I can't let go of the fact that all of this feels just so incredible. In fact, you know, it kind of feels like it's the live-action equivalent with Spider-Man of everything that was going on with Superman back in 2009 when we were getting a reboot that I don't think anybody wanted. Very few people seem to approve of. And it, everyone was sitting here asking themselves, why are we doing this? And so... It's kind of like that now with Spider-Man and live action to where the stuff itself that what you know the product is good it's just I don't I don't understand why we're going to the going to this level when what we had before was already perfectly fine you know so that's how I feel about it I think reboots have just become for for whatever reason because it still seems like the vast majority of uh, at least fandom anyway doesn't particularly care for reboots but reboots just seem to be that that popular thing right now the popular thing for hollywood to do with these franchises is up oh, it's it's got 10 years on it well go ahead and reboot it it's it's very strange well and you know i can understand you know you want to you know freshen things up and liven things up for you know the new generation and everything but you know i think you're kind of selling them short a little bit. Like somebody read something, the uh, wrote something um, the other day that simultaneously blew my mind and made me feel really fucking old. And that was saying, yeah, well, you know, th- these new movies that are coming out now, they don't understand. These new fans today, they don't understand where it's at. They didn't grow up watching uh, Spider-Man 2. Now, I don't know about you, but I was living away from home. By the time Spider-Man 2 came out, I was living very happily, very comfortably on my own. I'd moved out of my parents' house. I was, you know, uh, in the workforce and all that stuff. And somebody comes back later and says they grew up watching Spider-Man. I mean, God, I felt fucking old. Mm-hmm. And But the other thing was, you know, I think it kind of it kind of sells your, your core audience short that, you know, the people that grew up watching this stuff, and I don't mean you and me now. I mean, like, the kids that were kids when this stuff came out. What you think they're not going to be interested in in you know Spider-Man Five when they're uh, you know fourteen fifteen years old? <laughs> You've left me speechless. <laughs> I, I've been trying to stay away from any spoilers or plot points or anything to do with uh, you know the next X-Men movie while simultaneously being really intrigued by what is it going to be how is it going to work and i'm very curious where x3 falls into all of this 
while I, you know, it, while it is my least favorite of all the X-Men films at the same rate, I'm not of the opinion that seems to be the popular opinion that it's a dog and it's a piece of crap and everything. I enjoy it. I can sit and watch it. It's just not my favorite one of the, of the series. Right. So I'm not sure what they're going to do, you know, continuity wise when it comes to that movie, because I just was reading something. Now I have no idea if there's any validity to this or not, but uh, apparently there's a rumor going around on the internet that Kelsey Grammer is going to uh, play the beast again in this latest X-Men movie. Mm -hmm. If that's the case, then that seems to validate Last Stand. Right. Unless, like you say, they're going to pull some sort of, you know, time travel thing that that ends up negating Last Stand. I'm really not sure how it's going to work. Just the simple fact that Charles Xavier is in the movie would seem to indicate that they're going to have a lot of explaining to do because I mean, those of us that stayed till the end of the credits know that he survived the movie, but how many people stayed to the end of the credits? Right. For that matter, how many people that stayed to the end of the credits really have that great of a, of a memory when it comes to that movie? Because again, it's not highly regarded. I myself had to just recently sit and rewatch it just to remember all the plot points of the movie, because I only kind of remembered it in the broad strokes as far as far as where it left particular characters, I couldn't remember. Did Rogue have her powers? She didn't have her powers. I couldn't remember stuff like that. So I had to give myself a refresher. So I'm wondering how continuity laden is this new movie going to be? Is it going to really honestly attempt to straighten all that out? Or are they just going to kind of go and do their own thing and hope that we kind of all follow whether it meshes or not? Which is kind of what the last movie did. To a certain degree. Right. Well, what happened, and you have to just keep in mind, I've got a very low opinion of Brian Singer on a personal level. I, th- mm-hmm. I think the guy is just a classless, talentless, just fucking hack. I think he's a he's a prick of a human being, and I, I just think the guy's an asshole. It, it really, it's, it's no more complicated. And I'm not saying that because he directed a Superman movie that I didn't like. That doesn't help his cause, you understand. I'm just saying that it's not because of that. He made um, so he did a an interview with I don't know some jack off website and basically somebody pointedly asked him you know um, well X you know goings on with X three Mr Singer sir you know goings on with X three of course it was nowhere near what it could have been if your genius could have could have guided the production but uh, you know what are your thoughts that you know now that you have a chance maybe to fix that which once went wrong what are your and he, he that's about as far into the question as as they got before singer actually cut the guy off and said oh you mean am i gonna unfuck it and i'm like dude really you're gonna talk shit uh, first of all about your own fucking boss like that to to internet media and then number two you're gonna insult another filmmaker a guy who by the way cleaned up your fucking mess because you left you, you left the production at literally the 11th hour to go to go off and direct superman the guy just basically did the best he could with what he had you know and now you're going to bitch and complain about all the things that went wrong because of you you know and just like little things like that but it was but and, and then he goes on to imply that yeah actually that you know i maybe i'm going to be shown that i misinterpreted something that he said but what the the takeaway message that i got from it was that yeah when, by the time credits roll for days of future past things are going to be a lot different somehow things are going to be a lot different 
um, in the in the live action X Men universe as compared to where where they are after X three, and you know he 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 was very coy about it. He never came right out and said so, but that was that's kind of the takeaway point because you know he can't give away everything in one interview, but he was just such a cl- just a classless just dick about about the whole thing, and that's what makes me think you know what. Those of you who are attached to X3, you know, both of you, the guy, both of you who like that movie, those of you that did enjoy it, and and if you're just really fixated on it, I, guys, if I were you, I wouldn't get too attached to it because it, I don't think it's going to be uh, in continuity for much longer. Just what I think. See, I don't really know all that much about him. I mean, beyond the fact that he directed X2 and he directed Superman Returns, uh, the guy's kind of an enigma to me. I mean, what what else has he done? What else is he famous for? Anything? Um, have you ever seen a movie called The Usual Suspects? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, I did. I was not particularly impressed, but that's not really my kind of movie anyway. Oh, all right. Well, he also did a movie called uh, Apt Pupil. Um, oh, that's the the Nazi one, right? Right. And so, okay, that I liked, but of course, I mean, look at the source material you're pulling from on that one. So, what is the source material? Oh, it was a Stephen King short story. Oh, that I did not know. Okay, all right. Well, um, and then I think the other thing that he did was a movie that was called uh, Valkyrie. It came out like 2008 or 2009 or something like that. With Tom Cruise. Yeah. That looked interesting, but it has Tom Cruise in it, so I didn't... Yeah, well, that's kind of where I'm coming from on it, too. Anyway, wow, okay, so we're at just about uh, two hours uh, right now. (laughs) I I bet we could probably go all day, but why don't you uh, tell everybody where they can find you? We're on the same feed, dude. You can find me at uh, twotruefreaks.com, where I'm on... God, I don't even know how many shows anymore, but... uh, you got everything that uh, Chris Honeywell and I put out together. Um, Tales of the Justice Society of America has recently uh, made its triumphant return. Ooh. And we will have new episodes coming out very shortly. I promise we got a whole bunch of them in the can. Uh, we've just had a few uh, technical problems going on behind the scenes. But the show is back with all new episodes. So continue to uh, keep your eye out for those. Uh, and then as I can make it, I'm still, I am still part of back to the bins, although I haven't been on an episode in a good long while. But, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I don't know when this episode of yours is going to go out. So the, this episode, uh, I, I'm going to be with the guys tonight recording an episode, a, uh, a uh, Captain America related episode for the new movie coming out. So I don't know that may end up airing before this does. I, I don't know when you're planning to release this one, but as I say, when I can, when I can make it to back to the bins, I will still be part of the back to the bins uh, podcast as well. And then whatever other little sidebar projects I can get to in, in time, I'll be on those as well. But yeah, look for me at twotruefreaks.com. Awesome. Well, um, and just to answer your question, this is uh, scheduled for release either May or June. So, ah. So yeah, there you go. So I'm, I'm betting that whatever it is that you record tonight probably is going to be out by then. But I, <laughs> you know, I think by now people seem to understand I like recording, you know, pretty far ahead. So. So, there you go. Um, All right, so then that's basically it for me. I'd just like to thank Scott again for taking the time to join me this time out, and especially for spending, at this point, over two hours talking about all this stuff. So, bye, everybody, and I'll talk to you next week. We are out.
together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth, are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the Toy Geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron, just Ron. Dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind. It's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. Hello and thank you for calling the Tales of the Justice Society of America 24-hour live human being customer service hotline. Hello, I... Unfortunately, all uh. of our representatives are sleeping. Or busy. Uh, busy. All of our representatives are busy right now. But if you stay on the line, your call will be answered in reverse Hungarian alphabetical order, starting with the letter... D. Okay. Your call is very important to us. Please stay on the line. Alright. We are experiencing longer than usual wait times. Your call will be answered in... 94. Minutes. Please continue to hold. Your call is extremely important to us. Please stay on the line. Check us out on the web at www.twotruefreaks.com Your call is ridiculously important to us. Yeah, Please if my call's so important, then why don't you answer it? What the f*** is taking so long? You may be asking yourself, what the f*** is taking so long? Um, Please be sure that we'll be with you shortly. Please continue to hold. Answer. Answer the goddamn... <laughs> Let me check, is he still there? Ah! Guys, he's still holding! Oh! <laughs> We're sorry for your wait. Please continue to hold. God damn it! Tales of the Justice Society of America is back with all new episodes. Only at twotruefreaks.com. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice, blind justice, a guardian devil. <coughs> <clears throat> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's, it's my Daredevil, you get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare?
Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me. And I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.